This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Wilson and Brittany and all of the musicians. I really appreciate all the work that they put into the music every week. Um, uh, yeah, this is not Pastor Thurman this morning, so I almost feel like I have to apologize to you. Um, but as you know, uh, the pastoral staff has been busy over the last couple of weeks just finalizing um, the last details for the new pastoral member here at FBC. And as it was mentioned earlier this morning, he's also busy with some SBC responsibilities. So he had asked me to preach in his place. Um, what I want to accomplish this morning is to try to give you a degree of consistency or continuity in what we have been learning about over the last couple months. Um, although I won't be in the book of First Peter, I've chosen to expand on one of the main themes or threats that you find in that book, suffering. And suffering is not a topic that is easy to talk about, necessarily. It's not easy to preach about. But last time Pastor Wilson preached to us, he expanded on that topic, and his text was in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Just a month ago, Pastor Thurman, at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1, was talking about hope in the midst of trials. Uh, just this last week, we received unexpected news about the passing of Brother Jimmy Brinkley, who a lot of you are, are close to, from what I understand. We also heard about the terrible events uh, in Virginia Beach with the shooting resulting in the death of 12 people and several people injured. I constantly think about my parents serving in Venezuela and just uh, the continuing deteriorating circumstances under which they serve in a country that's plagued with violence and um, oppression and hunger. We live in a suffering world. And uh, this morning, uh, I want to encourage you to continue to pray for opportunities as children of God to minister to those who are hurting. We are expected to be loving. We're expecting to give a loving embrace, to give a listening ear, to give a hot meal to people who are in need. That's what God expects of us. But it cannot stop there. It cannot stop there. If the people on the receiving end of our love die without Christ, they will go to the grave with a filled belly, but with an empty soul. So this morning, I want to bring before you a more comprehensive but not exhaustive understanding of the topic of suffering in the role of our lives so that you might be better prepared as you continue to serve the people around you who are hurting. I pray that God will give you uh, opportunities to love on others and through that love develop bridges and, and relationships so that you may not only uh, minister to their physical needs but ultimately their spiritual needs. I want you to listen to the words of a well-known writer and theologian <clears throat> who himself has dealt with suffering a lot in his own life. Uh, Tim Keller says this about this particular topic. He says, most books and resources for sufferers today no longer talk about enduring affliction, but instead use a, vocab a vocabulary drawn from businesses and psychology 
to enable people to manage, reduce, and cope with stress, strain, and trauma. Sufferers are counseled to avoid negative thoughts, to buffer themselves with time off, exercise, supporting relationships, to problem solve, and to learn to accept things we can't change. This is where our culture is when it comes to suffering. And this is where we want to gravitate towards when it comes to suffering. I've named uh, the, the sermon today, Suffering, Friend, or Foe. And my intention is to, to talk to you, Christian, in the, here this morning and help you understand that we can confident look, confidently look at suffering and greet it as a friend and not as a foe. My first point this morning is that God uses suffering to teach us about the ugliness of sin. And I'm going to invite you to turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. I'm going to be in several different passages throughout this sermon. But let's go ahead and stand once you, got the, once you get there and, and we'll read this together. It's an extent, extensive uh, passage, but... Um, Once you get there, I'll I'll read and you guys can follow. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1 says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab, the commander of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not my lord the king? All of them, my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab, so that Joab departed and went throughout all of Israel and came back to Jerusalem. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing. And he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. Thank you. You may be seated. We can learn a lot about sin in this interesting snapshot in the life of King David. In this passage, we learn that the adversary, the enemy of Israel, Satan, incites David in committing an act that he himself refers to as sin, as a great evil later in the passage. However, we're left perplexed as we come down uh, the passage and we start finding out as we read that numbering the people, I guess, wasn't a very, very good thing to do. I mean, verse 7 flat out says that this thing displeased God. This is, this is troubling to me because... Because censuses and numbering the people has happened before in the history of Israel without any ill consequence on the part of God in the past. We see this in the book of Numbers, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Deuteronomy. God was the one that commanded Moses to count the people for different purposes. So what is going on here? I mean, there's an element of mystery surrounding this particular story. 
However, we can see three things confidently. First, we see that Satan had a part in all of this. We see that David's transgression was something that took place internally, since the census itself wasn't evil. We also see that God was displeased, and he did not hold Satan accountable. He held David accountable for it. I want us to take our focus away from David for a second and go to another character in this story, okay? Let's talk about Joab. Joab was the commander of David's army, and he is written about it about extensively in the scriptures. In fact, he's mentioned at least 150 times across three different Old Testament books. This guy was an important character in the David narrative. He was spoken about more than David's beloved friend Jonathan, actually. And as we, as we see the, the different events unfold in this passage, we see that the author of the book of 1 Chronicles took Joab's good actions and he contrasted them with David's evil actions to create a very interesting and powerful sense of irony in this passage because Joab himself was not a very good guy if you're familiar with this story. Joab in the battles between the house of David and the house of Saul, tricked and murdered two commanders of Israel's army in cold blood after David had already made peace with them. Joab was also instrumental in the murder of Uzziah the Hittite. He is the man that received the instructions to put Uzziah in the front lines and to pull his soldiers back so that Uzziah will be killed. This was a command at which he did not hesitate to carry out. In fact, David was so distraught with this man that 1 Kings chapter 2 tells us that at the end of his life, he looked at his son Solomon and he told him, when you get a chance, kill Joab. Joab was a vengeful and deceitful murderer. Yet, ironically, it was this Joab that tried to talk David out of the census. It was this Joab that said that he would not count the two tribes because the king's command was abhorrent to him. You know, this word abhorrent is actually a, a verb in biblical Hebrew. The verb ta'ab is closely connected to another word, abomination. And these two words are usually uh, used in the context of idolatry, a sin, a sin that God detests, a sin that God loathes. We don't know what David's internal sin was, but we do know that it's greatly ironic that vengeful, sinful, murderous Joab found the king's action to be an abominable And while the story goes on, uh, God was displeased and David's sin brought horrible consequences to the nation. God sent uh, the seer Gad to, to David so that David would choose between three punishments. Gad told uh, David, you can either do three years of famine, you can uh, suffer three months of destruction by the hand of your enemies, or you can 
go through three days of pestilence in the land, and this was the last one that David chose. 70,000 people died at the hand of the angel of the Lord. 70,000 people. Sin is ugly. And hear me out. All sin is ugly. And as Christians, we we are at fault for making these categories where we talk about super sins and mini sins. When all of it makes God sick. All of it is a slap in his face and a disrespect to his son's sacrifice on the cross. I don't care if it's lust of homosexuality or if it's thievery or greed or if it's hatred or murder. It is all bad. It's all ugly. And sometimes God uses suffering to teach us that. God uses suffering to teach us about the ugliness of sin. Let's turn now to uh, John chapter 8, the end of John chapter 8, and and I'm going to talk about the second way uh, that God uses um, suffering to to teach us. He he uses suffering to display his power uh, for his glorious purposes as well. This is point number two. God uses suffering to display his power for his own glorious purposes. The end of John 8 says, this is verse 58, and we'll continue to read. Jesus said to them, and this is at the temple, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What Jesus was teaching his disciples in this particular passage was a a difficult lesson to, to learn for the Jewish community. Due to the dealings that Yahweh had with the nation of Israel in the past, it was a legitimate thing to think that wealth and Health were directly connected to God's blessing and stamp of approval of somebody's life. Let's let's look, for example, at Deuteronomy 7, which is a, a snapshot of the covenant that Yahweh made with Israel. It says, if you listen to and are careful to keep these ordinances, the Lord your God will keep his covenant loyalty with you. As he swore to his fathers, he will love you bless you and multiply you. He will bless your descendants and the produce of your land, your grain, new wine and oil, the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks in the land. He swore to your fathers that he would give you. He will, you will be blessed above all peoples. There will be no infertile man or female among you or your livestock. The Lord will remove all sickness from you. He will not put on you all the terrible diseases of Egypt that you know about, but he will inflict them on all of your enemies, on all of those who hate you. So, so try to put yourself in the sandals of the disciples now. This is what you grew up listening to, right? I mean, this is, after all, the covenant that Yahweh made with Israel. So it was legitimate for the religious leaders 
and for the disciples and for the Jewish community to see a connection between health, wealth, and God's blessing. Maybe another passage will be helpful to kind of drive this home a little bit more. And this is a passage that is very well known by a lot of you guys because it's, it's captured in the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about this almost word perfect. And, uh, and you know the saying, this is a scandalous saying that Jesus said. He said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than what? A rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And, and the train of thought goes like this. Well, rich people have money because God gave it to them, so they must be doing something right. However, what Jesus is saying here, just, it's, it's, it just goes counter to the culture. It, it's just very foreign to the ears of, of the disciples so that Mark and, and Matthew record that they were astonished and they asked this question. Who then can be saved? If not the rich, then who? Right? So this type of judgment was made by the Pharisees and it was made by the disciples. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we make these judgments too. I remember before me and Leslie decided to move to Virginia Beach, I was serving at another church uh, in West Virginia doing a lot of what I'm doing now. Uh, I would teach every now and then. I would help with the music, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember one evening, one of the deacons came and he played this video on the overhead projector. And in this video, I saw a man that I had seen on TV before, right? This was a man that I was a little bit familiar with from my younger years. Uh, His name was Brian Welch. Just by a raise of hands, does anyone know that name, Brian Welch? Brian Welch was a guitar player for the heavy metal band Korn, okay? And as I'm watching this video, I'm seeing this intimidating-looking dude covered in tattoos and dreadlocks, and he's talking about how he had achieved his dreams, how he had acquired popularity and money, and how in the eyes of society, he had it together. But secretly, he was addicted to drugs Privately, he struggled to be a single parent of a young daughter. And he was constantly battling depression and suicidal thoughts. In this video, Brian Welch talked about how he was challenged with the verse that, where Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And in 2005, uh, Brown, Brown Welch cried out to God and he asked him uh, to forgive him and to help him with his um, drug addiction. This last week, I decided to go online again and to look him up. And to be honest, I was expecting the worst because part of me thought that maybe this testimony was staged, right? Uh, it, that's not uncommon to see things like that where people are trying to go at the Christian um, population just for the sake of marketing so I I looked him up and to my delight I was wrong Brian Welch was preaching to this group of people from the book of of Galatians on the concept of the doctrine of, of unity with Christ 
And I watched in the light for 40 minutes, you know, 14 years later. And Brown Welch is still covered in tattoos. He still has dreadlocks. But now, he's a changed man. God took this broken and hurting individual and he displayed his power gloriously. God sometimes uses suffering to display his power. Let's continue to move on because I'm running out of time here. Um, Point three, God uses suffering to demonstrate his sovereign control of all things. We're all familiar with the story of Job, or a lot of us are at least. Job was a man who was blameless and upright in the sight of God, and he turned away from evil, right? And and we know that Satan came to heaven, and he accused Job of being loyal to God only because God had surrounded him with wealth and security. And and then we, we get this verse, verse 12 of Job 1, that is an amazing disclosure of the extent of God's sovereignty in the affairs of men. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch your hand. Beloved, Satan can only act as far as his creator allows him to act. There's this eternal chasm between the creature and between the creator. And Satan is not immune to that. He's not an exception to that. He's a creation. He's a fallen angel. There are philosophical systems in this world that talk about good and that talk about evil. And they say that there are these eternal forces that are constantly in conflict, bringing balance to the universe, right? And there's actually some theologians that like that. They're like, yeah, I like that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to use that to make sense of evil in the world. And they start saying stuff like, you know, God and Satan, they're just in a, this unending battle from eternity, and, and God wins some battles, and he loses some battles, and Satan wins some battles, and he loses some battles. And death and suffering... And evil, this is all just collateral damage in this battle. And we are caught in the crossfire, getting hurt. What do you think about that? Very encouraging boost to our existential value, right? I wonder what Job had to say about this. Let's look back at Job. Let's look at verse 14 and continue to go through what he went through. And there came a messenger to Job, this is verse 14, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck them down, and the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God came from heaven and burnt up all the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone was able to escape to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants. And only I was able to escape to tell you. And then there was another one, right? While he was yet speaking, he came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came 
across the, the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are dead. Talk about tragedy. Talk about hurt and suffering. Job was hit with an overload of bad news. Let me ask you, what do news like that do to your faith? What does that do to your concept of God's sovereignty in your life? You know, D.A. Carson says the following about what it's like to, to be in the middle of events like that unprepared. He says this, One of the major causes of devastating grief and confusion among Christians is that our expectations are false. We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. If by that point our beliefs are largely out of step with the God who has disclosed himself in the Bible and supremely in Jesus, then the pain from the personal tragedy may be multiplied many times as we begin to question the very foundation of our faith. So let me ask you again, where are you on this topic? Have you given suffering and evil the thought that it deserves? Do you truly believe that God is sovereign? The Bible says that Job did what? He fell to the ground and worshiped, saying, The Lord gave and the Lord take away, took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the midst of turmoil, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of great loss, he was not talking about the Chaldeans or the Sabaeans or the wind or the fire from heaven. He said, the Lord gave, and the Lord took. Talk about a great concept, a great understanding of God's sovereignty. Number four, very quickly. God sometimes uses suffering to purge us of our sin and to keep us humble. The scriptures tells us in, in the book of Proverbs that every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord does what? He waits the heart, right? We're all still growing, and a lot of times we fall guilty of not reminding ourselves of the fact that we haven't arrived yet. We're all imperfect here, right? The process of sanctification is not going to stop until we actually die. Some of us have had the privilege of walking with the Lord longer, longer than others. But nonetheless, we're all still in the process of maturing. Jim Berg, the author of a well-known Bible study, Changed into His Image. Anyone familiar with that book? Changed into His Image. Uses the example of a tea bag and hot water to explain how trials in our lives help reveal certain sins that sometimes we're even unaware of ourselves, right? He talks about how <clears throat> you know, the hot water doesn't create the flavor. It releases it. It draws it out. It highlights it. So we should not be getting mad at the hot water with a taste that we receive in the cup. 
because it is the contents of the tea bag that actually gives the flavor that we're tasting, right? Tim Keller, once again, puts it this way when he's talking about the dark corners of our heart. He says, we are largely blind to these things, even though they darken our own lives and harm other people. Then suffering comes along, timidity and cowardice, selfishness and self-pity, tendencies towards bitterness and dishonesty, All of these impurities of our soul are revealed and drawn out by trials and sufferings just as a furnace draws the impurities out of an unrefined metal ore. Think about the Apostle Paul, right? He was trained by the best of the best. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote nearly half of the New Testament, 13 out of 27 books in the Bible. This man was an exemplar evangelist, missionary, preacher, teacher, apologist, and he was gifted in so many different ways. You would think that God would just put this invisible force around his body and bless him with long life so that he can continue to move forward, right? Doing the the gospel's work. But we find out otherwise, right? We find out otherwise in the book of 2 Corinthians. He lists all the things that he endured for the sake of the gospel. He talks about beatings, about stonings, about floggings, about shipwrecks, about the list goes and on, being exposed to cold, being sick, being in dangers of robbers and Jews and all these different things. Not only that, he talks about this thorn in the flesh, right? This messenger from Satan that was sent to what? To keep him from becoming conceited. And Paul actually pleaded God. He asked God to remove this thorn. And what did God say to him? A lot of you guys know this verse. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. We are all in the process of growth and sanctification. So sometimes God has to use suffering to purge sin and to keep us humble. Last but not least, God uses suffering or use suffering to make our salvation possible. One of the earliest verses I can remember memorizing when I was young was the end of Hebrews 9, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the Bible talks about this. Sin kills. The right recompense, the right reward, the wages of sin is what? Death. And because we all sin, because we're all offenders, The righteous judge of the universe has to punish us according not to the amount of offenses that we've done, but the degree of the offense, the extent of the offense. I didn't didn't just insult a friend deserving some kind of uh, relational rift or some kind of spat or, or something like that. It wasn't just that I insulted even a police officer resulting in in a ticket or maybe even some jail time. 
It was an insult to an eternal God deserving an eternal punishment. One day, I'm going to stand before this righteous judge, and he will say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But then, Jesus is going to step in and say, I shed my blood for him. He bled for us. Hebrews 2.10 says the following, For it was fitting that Jesus, he, for whom all and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through what? Suffering. <clears throat> Beloved, when you find yourself in low moments in your life, which you will if you haven't yet, or when you are tempted to wallow in your own self-pity, or think that no one's got it worse than you do, think about Jesus. He didn't only endure an agonizing death on the cross. The deaths of the psychological trauma that he probably received from thinking about all the sins he would bear, and the fact that his own father had to turn from him because he was disgusted with the sin, we can't even put that into words. So I ask if you're visiting here this morning, friend, visitor, <clears throat> when you stand before the righteous judge of the universe, can you say confidently that Jesus will step in and say that he bled for you? Can you say that? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I want to encourage you, if you're visiting with us today, and you cannot say that confidently, to pray those words in private to God, and share that with one of us before leaving so that we can rejoice with you. So by way of review, <clears throat> before I close in prayer, God uses suffering to show us the ugliness of sin. God uses suffering to display his power for his own glorious purposes. God uses suffering to demonstrate his sovereign control and will over our lives. God uses suffering to purge us of sin and to keep us humble. And God uses suffering to make a way for atonement, to make a way for our salvation possible. I hope that you can put those things in your arsenal and use them as you minister to others who are hurting and suffering. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for, for suffering on our behalf. I thank you for making a way possible for us to benefit from something that we are uncomfortable with. And I pray that you'll continue to use us in a mighty way in our community and with one another. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We pray all this in your name. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, 
Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.